Good morning, everyone. If you could, go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7 is where we've been for a while, and uh, we'll be wrapping it up shortly. And John chapter 7 and John chapter 8 really do flow together quite well. It's, it seems to be one massive teaching that is done there at the temple. And uh, as we cover, just to kind of catch up a little bit, uh, chapter 7 and chap- chapter 7 is, lead, is the uh, Feast of the Tabernacles. And we've covered this in great detail about how important these feasts were. Uh, In the Old Testament, they were required by God as part of God's law that at at least in the minimum, a male representative from every household, uh, Jewish household, had to come back to Jerusalem on the temple, on the days of the feast. It was required of them to do so. And uh, here we find ourselves at the Feast of Tabernacles. This is uh, to to replay, uh, to reminisce about the time that God delivered Uh, the Jews from Egypt and the Exodus and God's provision over them, providing them nourishment, providing them manna from heaven, providing them water from the rock, providing them light as well uh, for guidance. And they would go over all of these things. And again, just kind of quickly review, but everyone would bring their temporary shelters to Jerusalem and they would set up these, we call them tents, you might say. They called them booths or tabernacles, temporary shelters, And they would be all over Jerusalem. The grounds would be covered. They'd be on top of people's roofs as well. And there was a a seemingly like a liturgy, uh, things that would be taught during this time. And we picked that up last week in Nehemiah chapter 8 and chapter 9, where Ezra repeated these things. And he rehashed and he went over that whole story about how God provided for them. And one of the one of the. Uh, epicenters of of that event is of course God providing water from a rock for them. Now this is at, uh, at the end there. If you look down at oh chapter thir- uh, seven verse thirty seven, can I get a little more volume here on my mic? Thanks guys. Uh, chapter seven verse thirty seven. Last week we looked at it was the last day of this feast, and Jesus stood up and cried out. And so we noted there there's something different. He had been teaching from a sitting position which was normal for rabbis to do. Uh, and here he stands up. It's a very climactic uh, point, and he yells out. He cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, this was huge. Uh, this, this Feast of the Tabernacles was to re- go back over everything, God redeeming Israel out of Egypt, setting them free to go and worship him, going over the manna, going over the water that he provided, right? Uh, There was also a ceremony that went on at that time daily that the priest would accomplish during the Feast of Tabernacles to remind them of God providing water. So when you're reading through chapter 7 and you get to this point, it seems almost out of place. But if you understand the historical context of the Feast of Tabernacles, it's right right on. It's extremely timely. And at the climactic ending of this feast, he stands up and he says, Look, all that is going on here this week is pointing to me. He cries out, come and drink of me. So this was an extremely important point. And as we've seen, these feasts are not just cultural laws that God wanted to put in place for cultural sake. Uh, They were required, but they're all pointing forward, like prophecy does, to a greater fulfillment. And now that greater fulfillment has come in in God incarnate, right? the one who has tabernacled, dwelt amongst men. And also, uh, we see it also fulfilled in that we are tabernacled with the Holy Spirit as well, uh, all believers in the new covenant. So a lot was covered there, and we'll kind of pick up from where we left off last week. So let's read verse 37 through 39, and we'll continue on through John chapter 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful gathering of believers, Lord. We thank you that you have regenerated us. You've sent the Holy Spirit to bring us to, to see you, to see the glory of the cross, to see our sin. You've opened our eyes, opened our ears, opened our hearts, Lord, put a new heart within us. And we have the seal of the Holy Spirit uh, with the assurance that we are on our way to heaven. 
that we will be glorified as well because Christ has been glorified, because he's risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. And our faith is in him, our risen Savior. Help us to remember that those things today. And we thank you for the salvation that we have. Help us to, to study your word today. Help us to learn from your word. Lord, we pray that we would be in right belief, right doctrine, and that our doctrine would also impact the way we behave and the way we love you and the way we love one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, here in chapter 7, verse 37, uh, we see this analogy, this comparison again, right, of drinking of Jesus and how it compares to water. Now, this is not new. This has been done many times in the Old Testament where God, speaking through a prophet, would say basically what Jesus is saying right there. So if you, we're going to be doing a lot of scripture turning today, by the way, uh, just to give you a heads up. But so what is Jesus saying when he says, come and drink of me? If anyone thirsts, let him come and drink of me. Uh, this is huge. Again, he's pointing to this, the ceremony that just took place. He's pointing to what it pointed to, the rock. But he's pointing to that he is that fountain of life. So a few things just to kind of review again last week, but also transitioning to this week's passages. Number one, by proclaiming that he is the source of spiritual life that all of the Old Testament water prophecies and types pointed towards, he is revealing that he is God. All right, that he is saying that, yes, when prophets spoke about coming to, to, to me, to God, to drink, and now Jesus stands up and says, come to me and drink, he is claiming to be God. And that's much of John, much of John. It's not just the I am statements where Jesus claims to be God. It's just over and over and over as you read it that he is claiming to be God. Uh, number two, by stating that it is the only, it is only by belief in him that one will be united with the Holy Spirit, he is claiming to be the true, the only, the exclusive source of all spiritual life. We are spiritually dead by nature. The only way that we can be made alive is by the Holy Spirit. And only through belief in Jesus will you receive the Holy Spirit for that life. Number three, uh, the internal work of God, the Holy Spirit, only comes to those who believe in God, the Son incarnate. So when he stands up and says this, if any of you thirst, come to me and drink, there's a lot going on. Don't just read over this. Don't just skip over this. He's saying all this feast, all this festival is pointing to, look, it's me. Believe in me. Come and drink. Now, in verse 38, let's look at it again there. Uh, verse 38 makes it clear that this fountain uh, that remained will remain in the believer. Look at verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And now this is not the first time uh, Jesus has spoken about this, about belief in him equals, equals uh, getting your thirst quenched and that out of your insides, your heart, your most inner self, that fountains will come forth, right? Turn back just a couple of chapters to John 14, and you'll recall that we have the woman at the well. And there we saw lots of, of, of terminology and phraseology where Jesus is again connecting these dots of drinking and believing in him. Look at John 4, what is it, 13 through 15? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He's speaking of the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have, or have to come to here to draw the water. And then Jesus goes on to tell her that he is that source, right? So within this passage, you compare it to what we looked at over here at John chapter 7, you find very similar wording uh, that belief in him will equal a, a inner an inside spring of water welling up he says in John chapter 4, to eternal life. So that those who believe in him, uh, this, this action, what is going to take place, it continues on, it is permanent, and goes all the way to eternal life. Again, this is another place that you can go to for eternal assurance. If you have been saved by God, if Jesus Christ is your Savior, 
you have the Holy Spirit in it. You have the spring of water that wells up to eternal life. It is not a spring that will run out of water, go dry, and you don't make it to eternal life. All right? It is permanent. What God does in the soul is a permanent, permanent salvation. But here again, you see this comparison. Uh, Christ gives and, and how this water comes forth. He is the fountain of life, but all those who believe in him have this fountain of life within them. So John chapter 7, John chapter 4 speak of this. And now turn with me over to Isaiah 55. Take your time. It's a pretty large book if you're just thumbing back to it. Also feel free to use your table of contents. Uh, Isaiah, there's multiple, multiple passages that we could read where, uh, again, you have God talking through a prophet and using a very similar wording. And, and the Jews understood this. They knew what he was claiming. Isaiah 55, verse 1 through 3, is one of the clearest. Now, hold your place there. I'm just going to read, I'm just going to read verse 37 back in John chapter 7, 37, right before we get here. So John 7, 37 says this. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, here, Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. God, speaking through Isaiah, says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy it, eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which is not satisfied? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. So God, through Isaiah, is calling the people to come to him, right? To come to the waters. How are they to come to these waters? Well, if you look back, it's by delighting in him, by listening to him. And by doing so, their souls will live. So that this, this water, this belief in God and satisfying your soul in him leads to eternal life. And there in Isaiah 55, look at verse 3. Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. So here you see all these things laid out. So when Jesus stands up and says this, the Jewish mind, especially the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes who supposedly knew so much of the Old Testament, they would hear what he is saying. They would understand what he is saying. He is claiming to be the voice, to be God that was saying, come to me and drink that your souls may be satisfied, all right? And that this, this, this permanent covenant, this eternal covenant is tied to him. And they would be exactly right. Because that's who Jesus is. He is the new covenant maker, the everlasting covenant bringer, and he is the one that is going to provide the Holy Spirit to do exactly what is being rehearsed and going over in these passages. Uh, look at verse 39. John chapter 7. Turn back there with me. John chapter 7, verse 39. And here, interestingly, G, uh, John gives us a commentary to the words of Christ that he just spoke in verse 37 and verse 38. So you have Jesus saying these things, then you have this commentary. Verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now this is really a fascinating verse and uh, it, it tells us that something has not happened yet. So what has not happened yet? Well, you go back to verse 38. And, of course, there the answer is, right? And we just read it. Our memories aren't that bad. But let's look again. Uh, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then there's a pause. And John says, this has not happened yet. So what has not happened yet? Uh, this, what he's talking about. Of in his heart will flow rivers of living water. And there in verse 39, he gives us commentary as to why it has not happened yet. So here's the question. Did the present believers that were there with Jesus, or even the Old Testament believers prior to this, uh, did they have the Holy Spirit according to verse 39? And this is a 
an interesting area of theology that you may not have, have wrapped your mind around too much, uh, and it may be new information for you today, but I encourage you to stay with us, follow the trail of scriptures, and I think you're going to see something there that, that is definitely important that we're, we often overlook on this side of the new covenant. Now, did the present believers there in front of Jesus, or even the Old Testament believers, have the Holy Spirit according to verse 39? So if you look at 38 and 39 again, we'll read them slow. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, now this he said about the Spirit. So here we know the Spirit is what he's talking about, uh, that out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So this is the connection, okay? Believe in Jesus, who's the fountain of life, and within you there will be a fountain of life as well, like John chapter 4 that leads up to eternal life. But verse 39, he says, this has not happened yet, all right? So according to John, it has not happened. It was hinging, waiting for something else to happen. What is this other thing that has to happen? Uh, if you read verse 39, again, it's right there. He said this about the Spirit, whom those who, he, who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not glorified. So in verse 39, you get two key historical time markers uh, in that passage that let us know that these, this has not yet happened, that there is a big difference between believers after the glorification and before the glorification of Christ. Uh, there in verse 39, you have were to receive. So they had not received, right? He's talking about in the future. Also, in verse 39, John says, As yet the Spirit had not been given. So what event was the reception of the Holy Spirit dependent upon? It's dependent upon what John says right here. Jesus was not yet glorified. It's hinging upon his glorification. So it, it, it think on that, of course, obviously, what is the glorification of Christ? It is his full ascension after his death, after his resurrection, back to the right hand of God where he receives all glory once again. And uh, he goes from a state of humility, of death on the cross, and, and all the humility and, and the torture and torment there, taking our sins upon him, to rising from the dead, ascending into heaven, right? And all power is given to the God-man, Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate. This is the glorification. It is massive, it is huge, it is a climactic event. Now, the connection with Jesus and sending the Holy Spirit is not a small matter. Often it's, again, overlooked. But you find passages like this in John, and we're going to find several of them, that you need to wrap your mind around this, or it doesn't make much sense. Now look at John 14. Turn over there with me. John 14, look at verse 16 and 17, and we'll hit these again as we go through them, but you're going to have a good foundation as well, before we get there, so that I think they'll make more and more sense to you. But John 14, verse 16 and 17, look what Jesus says. And this is, again, when Jesus announces to the disciples that he is going to be going away, right? And they are distraught, they're sad, they're upset beside themselves, and Jesus says, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. But, but there's also something else great, and here it is. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, this passage, along with what we just read over there in John chapter 7, 38 and 39, seem to be drawing a very clear distinction between the role of the Holy Spirit before Christ's glorification and after Christ's glorification. In John 7, it is only after the glorification of Christ that the Holy Spirit will be given. Okay? Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water after the glorification. John 14, 17, if you look there, it is only after Jesus is glorified that he will send the helper, that he will send the Holy Spirit to be in you. So this is a big distinction, a very large difference. So what is the difference in the role of the Holy Spirit in believers after glorification? John emphasizes that it is the internal indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that in you there is a, a locational difference. And we'll get to this in some examples in the Old Testament where how the Holy Spirit worked with believers 
and how the Holy Spirit works with believers on the other side of glorification. Uh, notice we're going to hit quickly just a few more here in John to see this sending, how it is a massive difference. But look at John 15, 26 through 27. John 15, 26 through 27. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So again, this, this has not happened yet. They're waiting on something. John lets us know they're waiting on the glorification of Christ. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, will come. It's future tense. Look at John 16. There's more in John 16. We're only going to read a few verses. 16, 4 through 7. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, the helper would not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So here we have again, right? This has not happened. This is not present. The, the role of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is speaking of is simply not there at this time while he is alive talking to the disciples who are believers. But he says, when I go away, and that's again, he ascends into heaven, his glorification, he will send the helper, he will send the Holy Spirit to them, and it will be an advantage to them. So did they have that advantage right then and there? No. But Jesus is clear, that advantage what the Holy Spirit is going to do is yet to come. And this is not a small matter. This is a big deal. And as we go through the book of John, you're going to see more and more that Jesus kept on telling them that this is going to happen. Even if you go back to the beginning of John, look at John 1, verse 33. John 1, 33 has really set this up for us. And we don't want to uh, forget about that. A little different wording, but it is the same event in John 133 Jesus is being announced by John the Baptist who is the great herald the great announcer that was prophesied multiple times in the Old Testament that would come and announce the Messiah that is to come look what he says in John 133 John the Baptist says I myself did not know him but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So the great announcer of the Messiah. How was he going to announce the Messiah? Number one and most obvious, right? Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. And there we have all the sacrifices of the Old Testament coming to an ultimate head in Jesus Christ, who is our Passover lamb, who is the lamb who brings atonement to us, propitiates the wrath of God for us. He, he takes the sin on himself, right? But also, John says he is the one whom God the Father told him is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. So what is this baptism of the Holy Spirit? It is the same event that Jesus has been speaking of that we've looked at multiple places in John it is what is going to happen to all believers upon Jesus' glorification. Look at Luke 24, verse 48. Take your time. I warned you ahead of time. Lots of scripture today, but I'll give you time to look them up. Luke 24, 48 through 49. And we begin to see how this is mapped out over time. John the Baptist announces him as the one that's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. You see the Old Testament types being fulfilled in that, that God is the fountain of life, but yet we are going to have the fountains of life within us. How is this going to happen? It all involves the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit had not yet come, but is hinging upon the glorification of Christ. Look at Luke 24, 48 through 49. You are witnesses of these things, Jesus says, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So what is Jesus talking about here? He has been raised from the dead. He will ascend. He will go to his Father. He tells them where to remain and when they are going to be clothed with the power from on high. And this is the promise of the Father that he had been talking about. 
So this is going to be the helper. This is going to be the, the uh, everything that John has been talking, of, talking to us about is about to happen. How is it going to happen? That's when we turn to Luke part 2. Where's Luke part 2, by the way? The book of Acts, right? Acts chapter 1. Uh, same author, and it's, it, it really could have been named Luke 1 and Luke 2, but it's Acts. Acts chapter 1 picks up right where Luke ends, ends his book at, and he uh, goes on to continue now what happens after Christ dies and rises from the dead. So Acts chapter 1, 1 through 5, just setting this up. All right, in the first book, O Theophilus, of course, talking about Luke, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days of, of speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So you're seeing all these things connected, right? From John the Baptist's announcement of who Jesus is. He is the one that's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. The promise of Jesus saying, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. From Jesus rising from the dead and Jesus saying, go to Jerusalem and wait there for the promise that I've, I've given to you. And here we pick up in, in Acts and all of it's happening. He's saying, go there and wait. And by the way, all of this, again, is tied to those three instrumental required feasts of God. So we have Feast of the Tabernacles that's happening over here when Jesus says, come to me and drink all of you who thirst, right? We have the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the other required feast where Jesus is put to death and Jesus changes that whole thing to say, look at me. He says, I am, it's through my blood, it's through my body, believe in me, this is the new covenant given in my name for the forgiveness of sins. Again, he brings that feast to this climactic, it's all about me. And then here uh, they are arriving in the book of Acts at the next great feast that is required is the Feast of Weeks, also nicknamed the Feast of Days. Also, the name we go by often is Pentecost, which means 50 days. And so this is another required feast. And all this is going to happen in God's perfect timing. And you look over at these events, it's like, God's absolute perfect timing over all of it. Now, continue on. Look over at Acts chapter 2. And this, this could go on longer than we have time for today. I've just chosen some of the passages to kind of quickly get through to get the point across. Of course, feel free to read more later. But Acts chapter 2, look at verse 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from, a, from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire uh, appeared to them and rested on each of one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, and the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, how is Peter going to explain what is happening? You have the 120 believers. It's the day of Pentecost, the, the loud rushing wind that stirs up everyone in Jerusalem. Remember, they're all back there for this festival. It is required. They had been there for the Feast of Tabernacles. They had been there for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover. They had seen Jesus do the miracles. They had seen him die on the cross. They had heard the resurrection from the dead. Now they're all back. Virtually the same people are all back there again. The rushing of the wind, they all come back. And there these 120 believers are. And just as it says here, there's divided tongues of fire that appeared on them. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And they're speaking in known languages to all these people who have come back to Jerusalem. What does Peter do? He quotes a prophecy from Joel about how from the least to the greatest, all of them will have the Holy Spirit. And then he tells them that this is the sign that Jesus has arrived. He is in heaven. He has been glorified. And he has now done exactly what he said that he would do. Look at Acts 2, uh, 32 through 36. Peter stands up in this huge crowd, right? He presents the gospel, and he also explains what is happening here. He says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, 
And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So here it is. We have John, like we're covering today in chapter 7, verse 37 through 39. Uh, the explanation of the Holy Spirit, the fountains within. When is this going to happen? John says, not yet, uh, because Christ is not yet glorified. This will happen. Uh, there elsewhere in John, he keeps saying this is, will happen, that the Holy Spirit will be in you, and then the promise is going to come. Uh, Luke says, hey, there he's recording Jesus saying, go and wait in Jerusalem for the promise. And then you get to Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, and here it is. The promise has come, and this is it. He quotes from Joel. Uh, he explains that Jesus has arrived. That One of the ways that we know that Jesus is indeed God is that he, he did everything exactly like he said he was going to do. He said he was going to his Father. He was going to send the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the great day of harvest. Uh, agricultural harvest is what these feasts were kind of built on as well. And what happens? 3,000 people uh, believe and are, repent of their sins and believe that day. Now, what does this mean for you? Uh, do you have the Holy Spirit? Uh, and the answer is if you are a believer, you most certainly do. Uh, and the questions often, depending on where you've come from and who you've hung out with in the past within Christianity, I remember one time being at a in the, at an event uh, that I was supposed to speak at, and I got done speaking, and someone said, so came to, to me, and they said, oh, you must have the Holy Spirit. And I said, yes, I am saved. And they said, no, 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 you must have the Holy Spirit. I said, yes, I am a believer in Jesus Christ, and I have the Holy Spirit within me. And uh, what they were alluding at and kept alluding to is they believe in a second baptism of the Holy Spirit that all believers should be looking forward to. And instead of seeing the book of Acts, as an historical transition, going through, and you'll go over this in discipleship, uh, we now, all believers, have the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that regenerates us remains, and we have the fountain of life that springs up to eternal life. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. So oftentimes you'll hear those of the, the charismatic leaning say something like, have you prayed to receive the Holy Spirit? If you are a believer... You don't pray to receive the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. It is automatic, all right? You don't have to pray for the Holy Spirit. And we see this throughout Scripture. Uh, you might want to look at these, underline these, or make a note if you have such discussions with some of your friends. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. Look at this one with me. And look these up. I'll, I'll give you a moment. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. Gives me a chance to drink coffee. And you'll notice that all who are believers have the Holy Spirit. If they do not have the Holy Spirit, they're not believers. Uh, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For if one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So here, don't get confused. Oftentimes people see the word baptized and think that's always talking about water. Obviously not. We just looked at how when, when John says, hey, I baptize with water, there's going to be one that comes that baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is speaking about here. All believers, all who are in the body of Christ have been baptized and made to drink of one spirit. And you take that back to how John is describing what Jesus is talking about, right? If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. This is true satisfaction. Or John chapter 4, the woman at the well, drink of me and you'll never thirst again. And this well that is within you, the water that is within you, goes up to eternal life. Here, John or Paul is picking up on those same things. For if in one spirit, verse 13 says, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So how many of those in the body of Christ have drunk of the Holy Spirit? 
have been baptized of the Holy Spirit? All. It's 100% there. All right? Look over at Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. Romans chapter 8, 9 through 11. Look what Paul says here. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And notice this is a massive change from the wording that we're going to find in the Old Testament of where the Holy Spirit dwells. If, in fact, the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life, give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So Paul belabors the point here that this has happened. He's talking to the believers and the, the Holy Spirit is in them. Over and over it is mentioned here. Uh, look at back at verse 9. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So if you are a believer, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, Jesus says, come to me and drink. That, that is the gospel. That is belief in Christ. Belief in Christ, all those who believe in Him have the Holy Spirit. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you are not of Christ. So what we find here is we don't have, every, Paul is talking to the Romans, uh, all of them have the Holy Spirit. Uh, turn over to 2 Corinthians. I should have done that one before, a less flipping distance, but 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So over and over, there's many places we could go to. You're going to look at some of them in discipleship. But you're noticing a change here from the way things are worded in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant to after the New Covenant. Now, oftentimes, some, some theologians and some Christians will try to make Old Covenant and New Covenant very similar, almost the same. And after the New Covenant, before the New Covenant, not much difference. I see massive difference happening after the New Covenant. And I think the book of John repeats this over and over and over, that there is going to be a baptism of the Holy Spirit, not as in the charismatics often think of, all right? They often will emphasize that everyone would, must speak in tongues, which is... Is, uh, I've only heard gibberish. I've not heard uh, the immediate supernatural giving of an unknown tongue, all right? Uh, but instead, this is that indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the fountain that wells up to eternal life. And we see the changing here in the wording, in you, in you, in you. This is the consequence of the new covenant of Christ's glorification of him sending the Spirit. Uh, look at the differences. Like, Let's go to Jeremiah. Look at Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34. We're going to look at two places here where the, the new covenant is greatly emphasized by the prophets of God. And they announce what is to come, what is going to happen with the new covenant that God is going to make. And this is huge because we've looked at this many times. Were the Israelites very good at keeping the covenant with God? If you had to grade them, you know, from A to an F, uh, what would it be? Uh, it would probably be an F, right? You go through the book of Judges, and it's just they continually trash the covenant that they've made with God. And they receive the curse. They receive the wrath. And then they call out for salvation. God sends them another judge. And like, oh, okay, we're going to keep it this time. Fingers crossed we were not. All right, and they keep on and keep on. What do they need? They need someone who can keep this covenant for them because they can't do it. And that's who Jesus is. He is the ultimate Israel. He is the ultimate covenant maker. He is the ultimate covenant keeper so that we rest in him, our covenant keeper. And there's great benefits through this new covenant that are different from the old covenant. Look at Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the house of, the, of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is a very important scripture because there's going to be a new covenant that's coming that is not like the old covenant because they continually broke that covenant. Look at verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. This is an important point. You want to circle that, underline it. And I, speaking of God, will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, this is a difference from the old covenant. Uh, what is he implying here? He's implying this internalizing, this work of God, the Holy Spirit, that he is going to do upon each and every single member of the new covenant. It is going to be a new heart. The law of God written upon their hearts. The ownership of God. He will be their God. They will be his people. Look at verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So what I want you to notice here is that this new covenant is different from the old covenant. It is not a similar thing. Uh, even God himself says, I am going to make a covenant with you not like the old covenant. Then he explains the difference. And a lot of what he is saying here fits really well over here. When you see the internalizing, the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, in believers after the glorification of Christ. Now, is in the Old Testament, were they regenerated by the Holy Spirit? Yes. And we see that in John chapter 3, when Jesus explains to Nicodemus the work of the Holy Spirit. They were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We we're all spiritually dead. No one can be made alive except through the supernatural act of God. But there is yet a difference from Old Covenant to New Covenant. What is it? It is this internalizing, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to Ezekiel. Harder to find, but take your time there. Look at Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. Here, Ezekiel, again, a prophet of God, speaking about the new covenant that is to come. And I want you to see how he speaks of this. And he speaks of this internal work that God is going to do under the new covenant. And again, you have water. The analogy of water is used here as well. And we could do more here, but I'm only going to use verse 25 and 26. Uh, God says, Ezekiel records, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from, your, from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now, again, notice this difference here. He's talking about the new covenant. There is true cleansing, true water from God that is cleansed and forgiven all sin. Uh, all idol, your idols I will cleanse you of. No Christian is going back into idolatry to worship other gods. And in verse 26, 6, it's this new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is what what this is all building up this new covenant that was announced this promise internal indwelling changing right and it's what John opens his book up with that this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and and John records hey this has not had yet happened but when Christ is glorified it is going to happen Jesus keeps telling him I'm going to send the Holy Spirit I'm going to send the Holy Spirit this is a massive massive change now how does this compare to Old Testament uh, saints, Old Testament believers. We don't have a lot of time, but I want to give you a few examples, okay? So turn with me. A lot of places here. Get your thumbs ready. Get your forefingers ready. Numbers chapter 11. You didn't know it was going to be Bible drill day, did you? At least we don't have you standing up as soon as you find it. We could. No. All right, Numbers chapter 11, 16 through 17. So Moses obviously was a great man that was used by God, used of God. And look at look at look at look at the difference here compared to the Holy Spirit after the glorification of Christ. Look at verse 16 and 17. What we find is that there are, the Holy Spirit would come upon people or be with people for particular roles that God would call them to. Uh, like 
judge, and judge, judges and, and uh, kings. Uh, here in 16 and 17, look what he says. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand before us there with you, and I will come down and talk with you there. I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. So there is this, this, this difference, right? God is going to put some of the spirit that is on Moses on them, and they are going to fulfill this role of responsibility as judges. This is the kind of wording that you find throughout the Old Testament. Uh, turn over to the book of Samuel. First Samuel, you'll we'll see it multiple places here. And Samuel, um, look at verse, uh, chapter ten, verse six. Speaking of Saul, he says, "Then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and be turned into another man." So this is how God used the Holy Spirit in the calling of Saul to become the king. Uh, turn over to 1 Samuel 16, verse 12 through 13. Again, we're noticing a difference here compared to what happens after the glorification of Christ. 1 Samuel 16, 12 through 13. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was a ruddy, he was ruddy and had a beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of the brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So what happened here? We see the anointing of two different kings, uh, Saul and David, and God sending the Holy Spirit upon them for that service. Later, as David sins and uh, commits adultery, commits murder, etc., he prays to God, do not take your Holy Spirit from me, as he did to Saul. Saul had the Holy Spirit removed from him later on. Uh, just one other example, if you, uh, Judges chapter 3, 9 through 10. And you see this throughout the book of Judges. If you think of Samson, one of the most popular judges, every time he does this great heroic feat of strength, right, I'll say, and the Holy Spirit came upon him, and he destroyed 10,000 Philistines, right? Or, and the Holy Spirit came upon him, and he ripped the gates off the city wall. And it's this, the Holy Spirit coming upon him, upon him. Judges 3, 9 through 10, you have another example of that kind of wording. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer, for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, the spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. So, long story short, there is a big difference. And today we're looking at John chapter 7, 37 through 39, that Jesus is culminating all this Feast of Tabernacles to look at him, kind of like he did at the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? He'll eventually, six months from now, say, look, this is all about me. And here he does it as well with the Feast of Tabernacles. You're talking about water. You're talking about the water from the rock that God supernaturally provided that if you didn't have, you would have died in the desert. He said, I am that. I am the fountain of life. You must drink of me. Not literally, but again, it's a metaphor. It's pointing to something higher spiritually. We must believe in Jesus for our salvation. It's the same thing that Isaiah recorded over there for us. Come to me. Come to God. Desire me, and you thirst will be quenched, right? So the difference now, after the glorification of Christ, is that all believers have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You have God's, God's the desires of God upon your heart. You desire to love God. You desire to love others now. This is put there by God. You have the seal of God's Holy Spirit. You are on your way to heaven. You have the fountain within you that leads to eternal life that will never run dry. So we have that. We have that helper now. We have the promise of the Holy Spirit. So a couple of things to review. In the Old Testament, descriptions of the Holy Spirit speak of the Holy Spirit being upon or with. You see that very common throughout. I'll give you a few examples. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was only upon a select few people like kings and judges. All right, how's that changed? New Testament's way different. After the New Covenant, after the glorification, the descriptions of the Holy Spirit change from being upon and with to in a believer. And number four, currently all believers have the internal working and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
So where does that leave us? That leaves us thanking God for sending the promise to us. And we rest knowing that we are saved. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There is this mass difference on this side of the glorification of Christ. And we thank Him for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for sending Jesus Christ to provide salvation for our sins. And unfortunately, uh, we don't thank You enough uh, for, for sending the Holy Spirit upon the glorification of Christ. It signals, as Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 says, that Jesus has arrived, that he did die. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He has received all power and all glory and all honor, and he sends the Holy Spirit to all who believe in him. We thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit to indwell in us, to radically change us, to sanctify us, to turn us into the people that we need to be. God, we thank you for sealing us with the Holy Spirit that we can rest fully assured that we are on our way to heaven and nothing can take that away. We thank you, God, that the fountain of life that we have drunk from in Jesus Christ now flows within us and it leads to eternal life and that well will never dry up. We thank you, God, for all the great lessons in the Old Testament that pointed to and do point to the work and the person of Jesus Christ that he is the manna that must be eaten of, the bread from heaven to have eternal life, that he is the water that must be drunk of to have eternal life. We thank you, God, that you have made it crystal clear, abundantly clear, that it is only through belief in Jesus that we can have eternal life, that we can have our sins erased, forgiven, gone, paid for, and that we can have the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And God, we pray today, if there's anyone here or listening in, that has not been saved, we pray that you would perform that supernatural work upon them today. May they see their sin. May they see the wrath and curse that they deserve for disobeying you. May they see the glory of the, of the cross and what Jesus has accomplished, who has never sinned, who is God and man, who died on the cross to bring forgiveness of sins to all who believe in him. May they turn to him and quit looking to the world to quench their thirst and look to the Son. In Jesus' name we pray.